When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We're talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It's Saturday, August 14th. We've got a great guest for you this weekend. Her name is Beth Akers. She is an economist, but she doesn't talk like an economist. So we like that. Her book is called Making College Pay. An economist explains how to make a smart bet on higher education. And I love her approach because she really does think about college as an investment. And it is an investment. It's an investment in you and your kids and how you're going to make the most of that investment, how you're going to increase the return on that investment is the reason why we're bringing Beth onto the program with us. If you've got a question about college funding, if you are really intrigued by this particular conversation and the second part of it, which will occur tomorrow. We'd love to hear from you. Our website is jillonmoney.com. Hit the contact button or just send us an email. Ask jill at jillonmoney.com. Here is the first part of our conversation with Beth Akers. Now you are um, a numbers geek. Let's be honest, right? (laughs) Yes, I'll take that. Okay. And you wrote a book, uh, you co-wrote a book rather called uh, Game of Loans, The Mm -hmm. Rhetoric and Reality of Student Debt. So just give us a little bit. I didn't read that one. So I Mm -hmm. didn't read your current one. Tell us a little bit about that book and what you were trying to accomplish with that and how it led to this book. Sure. So that book sort of came out of my irritation with the way that we generally talk about college and especially student debt. So there's a sense that uh, people who borrow are necessarily worse off than if they didn't, and every borrow dollar that they borrow makes them worse off. Now, economists have been showing evidence for decades that college offers a huge economic return. So the idea that borrowing to make that investment necessarily puts you in a bad place place just doesn't jive with that. So that book was really an attempt to get people to understand this way of thinking of college as an investment and borrowing to make that investment is not necessarily such a bad idea. Of course, sometimes it doesn't work out well, but that's not the typical story. So how was that book received by um, the, the college funding and the college screed group out there that says never, ever, ever, ever borrow? Well, I'll tell you what, I got a lot of speaking invitations after that book came out from college and university associations who are kind of thrilled to have permission to keep charging prices and asking students to borrow. But um, from the more student advocate side of the community, 
people were not thrilled with this. I mean, I became known as the bit of a student loan crisis denier, which is <laughs> not, not entirely accurate, <laughs> but I guess there's some truth in that. I mean, I like to characterize that the problems that we face are different from the macro, the sky is falling kind of narrative that we have been hearing about student debt. I think it's great. I love counterintuitive stuff. Um, I had always read all these studies that show that when you have a college degree, you make more over the course of your career. Can you give us the actual numbers? Like, what is the differential? Yeah, that's exactly right. So look, to be geeky for a moment, it's really hard to measure this, right? The people who go to college are kind of different than the people who don't. So if we just look at the differences in what they earn, it doesn't quite give us exactly what it is that college does to your earnings. So, But economists have tried to estimate this in a number of different ways and always comes out that it's a huge positive number. So one of the recent numbers from a Georgetown study says you earn upwards of a million dollars over the course of your career with a bachelor's degree versus if you had just entered the workforce after high school. The New York Fed has a really great study that estimates it on a percentage basis. So they say, if the investment you make in your education were measured, kind of like we measure the stock market, you'd have a 15% rate of return on associates and bachelor's degrees. So while any of these studies have issues, right? Never, I'm not going to hang my hat on any single number. I feel confident that based on this body of research, that it's just a large positive return. You know, I think what's interesting is that because you are you are data driven that you also are you're also a scientist and so you want to make sure that we are framing these questions the right mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and the one thing that i thought was really interesting early in the book is that you talk about how you know the fact is that you're paying for this college education right this this is a steep price tag but your annual earnings the wage premium over what you would have earned otherwise continues for your lifetime. Mm -hmm. Um, But how does carrying the debt play into that? So if you think that, you know, the effective rate of return on a college degree is something like 15%, call it around that, right? That's what the Fed estimates. And then people who are borrowing from the federal loan program right now are borrowing at an interest rate of 2 or 3%. So the difference between those means that even if you're borrowing and paying interest along the way in order to get that wage bump, you're still coming out ahead. It's the old idea that, you know, you pay down your highest interest credit cards first, right? Because borrowing borrowing at a low interest rate to invest in something that yields a high rate of return is actually a wealth enhancing activity. So that's what's going on here. Borrowing at a low rate, of course, it's less of a return than if you were able to pay cash, but who's got the cash to pay for college today? So it eats into those returns a bit, but the returns are so generous, at least on average, that borrowing to make that happen for yourself can really still be a very smart and savvy option. Just to like put this in stark terms, Beth Akers, the economist, author of Making College Pay, writes the following. It's almost always better to borrow as much as you can. That is going to blow the mind of people. <laughs> it really is, okay? But yeah. what you're saying is right. It's, it's, it is actually an arbitrage. So right. the interest rate on federal direct Stafford loans right now for undergrads is 3.734% this mm-hmm. year, okay, mm-hmm. this academic year. Okay, you're going to borrow 3.734 and you're going to invest in yourself at a rate of return of 15%. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What upends that calculation? 
what upends that calculation is if you end up in a degree program or at a university that does not yield those returns. So when we talk about the million dollars, the 15%, that's on average, right? So not everybody is experiencing those outcomes. There are things you can do to ensure or make it more likely that you end up with a good return, but not everyone's going to get there. And so that's the problem. That That's the social problem that we have to solve with student loans right now, which is that people are borrowing and sometimes not seeing that return. And those people can really be up a creek without a paddle. So um, that's what I really advise in the book is to think carefully about not just the cost of education, but the risk. And is that risk something that your family or you as an individual are able to bear? Now we're going to go into everyone listening, calm down, because we're going to explain <laughs> these terms. Because if you fell asleep in econ or if you fell asleep in finance classes, we are going to talk about risk, which I am very into. Generally speaking, there is systemic risk and there is idiosyncratic risk. Let's right. talk with systemic risk. Explain okay. that to the listeners. So the biggest source of systemic risk here is that you start college and graduate during a pandemic. That might have seemed like a crazy idea if I'd written this book five years ago. Um, But now we all see that um, as as a potential reality. So what happens is that when you graduate, when the economy is in an expansion, you get to ride the benefit of that. You start out with a great first job. It's a good paying job. And then the heightened wages that you get because of being graduating in expansion will actually last close to your entire career. It's sort of crazy. On the other hand, if you graduate during a recession, you might not get a great first job. Maybe you have to take something in the meantime until you get something in your major. And the effect of that actually lasts over your career as well. So the problem is that this has nothing to do with whether you've made the right decisions about where to go or what to study. Um, This is just the risk that we all face collectively when we start college. And there's nothing you can do about that. I mean, this is one of the things that we feel so bad about with Mm -hmm. uh, certain millennials who seem to just keep getting whacked over the head like pinatas Mm -hmm. in terms of their unlucky timing versus, say, someone like me who was lucky to graduate in the 80s. And like, Mm -hmm. whoa, like every idiot who wanted a job and had a heartbeat got a job. And right. it was pretty lucky. And even if you had a short-lived recession here and there, mm-hmm. it was pretty much a straight-up arrow, right? Yeah. Yep. This is a risk that's hard to get out from under. I mean, there are some new mechanisms that are emerging that I'm really excited about. There's startup companies that are coming into the market and they're saying, look, if you think of education as an investment. We know how to insure investments so that people are not putting it all on the line. So the idea of insurance, right? We're all familiar with how insurance works for a home, for a renter's policy, things like that. We're starting to see companies and colleges offering insurance policies to protect against the sort of systemic risk that we just talked about, things like graduating during a recession. And also they protect against the idiosyncratic risk, that's risk that is just really more individual. They're all new, but I'm really excited and hoping that that market takes off. Hold on a second. I want to understand who are the actuaries who are trying to measure how to quantify systemic risk based on someone going to college and not knowing what they're going to end up doing? <laughs> so these are the financiers behind uh, commercial lending. I mean, this it's a it's a tough business, but what we see is there's actually a lot of data on how students perform coming out of different majors, coming out of different institutions. Obviously, you can't predict outcomes as well if you don't know what a student is going to study. Um, but that's the challenge that these companies are facing: is that how do you measure 
What are the likely outcomes? How do you price the risk that an individual faces? And do students want to pay that price to protect themselves from the downside? So it's an emerging market. I think it's super exciting. It's not accessible everywhere, but I'm really hopeful that we see more of it in the future. All right. So we talk about systemic risk. We're all like, I'm not we, but uh, anyone who's got a kid going to school or anyone thinking about going to school, him or herself, you're in the pool automatically. You've Mm -hmm. got that risk. It's like, okay, you're an investor. You're going to have to be subject to fluctuations in the marketplace. However, we then have idiosyncratic risk, meaning that the things that you are choosing to do or not do can put you at risk. And let's talk about that. So the first one I want to talk about is the potential that you don't graduate. Mm. Everybody who starts college imagines they're going to finish, right? Because it's just not worth the money unless you walk across the stage of graduation and get that credential that you can show to employers. The reality is that a huge number of students are not graduating. And so those people have put out the money, they've borrowed, and they're not getting the value of the degree that gets them higher wages in the labor market. And just to be clear, if you get half of a bachelor's degree, you don't get half of that million dollar earnings bump over the course of your lifetime. That's just not how it works. You've got to cross the finish line to get there. So that's a huge source of risk that I think people really underestimate. And you say that based on a lot of research that really most people are dropping out before graduation or not finishing up or taking way longer than they should is, is actually financial, right? I mean that, you know, there's something going on in the family we can't pay, or there's a health issue and we can't pay and you need to be home or you have to be working. And those are, those are things that are pretty tough to control, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, we, I think we tend to think about the 18 year old who's has their parents support and, you know, moving off to college for four years and can focus solely on that. That's not really the reality for most students. The majority of students starting college today are adults. They're working jobs. They have children. Maybe they support their, their parents. So the, the lives of people who are in college today are much more complicated than we often imagine. And when you realize that it's actually not so surprising that things tend to get in the way of them being able to complete a degree on time or even at all. You spend a lot of time when you're talking about idiosyncratic risk about choosing the wrong school. Now, Mm -hmm. Beth, I'm no economist. I'm just a former trader turned certified financial planner turned (laughs) media host. Um, And I wrote a book a couple of years ago The book was called The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. Mm. And one of the dumb things I said was that you kind of paid up for a crappy school and that it puts the kid or the family at risk in in a ridiculous way. Right. Of all the things I wrote about, that got so much pushback. I think also Mm. because the people who buy these kinds of books are the kinds of people who don't get financial aid Mm -hmm. um, and they really feel like they should be able to give their kids whatever their kid wants, even if they're going to what's the matter you and like that's a rotten fourth tier liberal arts school. Like they just don't, they just can't say no to their kids. Right. So I want you to talk about how choosing the wrong school 
can be a big risk and how to mitigate that risk. So Jill, like when you and I were deciding where to go to college, you know, I don't know if you did the same thing as I did, but I went to the back of Barnes and Noble and sifted through that telephone book like index of, of colleges and the U.S. New, News and World Reports studies that describe the different campuses. And it sent from surveys, did students think they had a good party life on campus and what majors they had? And that's how we picked colleges. I mean, there was a, a lot of, you know, going with what the marketing told you that the institution was all about. Students today have a humongous advantage, which is that if they want to make an economically minded decision, which I think most people do, even though they don't necessarily come to the table with that as their first priority, there is data available to help you make decisions based on where you're going to get a return on your investment. In the past 10 years, we've had the development of a website called the collegescorecard.gov. And what that is, is a place where the federal government is publishing the earnings of individuals graduating from each accredited institution and major across the entire country. So if you're someone shopping for college and you're thinking, okay, this is a liberal arts college. It's kind of fancy. It must be a great place to send my kid, right? I'm going to get a rate of return. It's going to be fantastic. Now you can go check. <laughs> and uh-huh. I think, and what I'm afraid people are going to find often is that we have confused the idea of price and value when there's not good information about what the service is worth, what that education is worth. People are going to say, well, it's very expensive, so it must be good, right? Mm. Um, I think that's very natural. But the reality is that no, sometimes when it's expensive, it's just expensive. Part of what you're buying is a country club experience for your child for four years. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you might just spend your money on, good on you and go for it. But for the 90% of people who go to college and state that their number one priority is to get an economic return, to get a better job, to advance themselves financially, this has got to be the starting point for where they think about where they want to enroll, where they want to spend their dollars, and where they want to spend their time to invest in their education. So I was playing around with this because I I saw it, you mentioned it in the book, and it's really kind of cool. And you also mentioned another one called College Navigator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was involved with um, when Money Magazine first created that big, huge database about how to find that information. I just, I think that there's, um, there's a really important part of this process, which of course has to take place early. That's mm-hmm. the other thing that, you know, you're, you're raising these issues and it really necessitates that the family start having conversations early enough to do this kind of research and to kind of do a better matching of what's happening for the kid, the family, and what's available out there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, something I'm worried about is that we have we collectively, officials, leaders, cultural leaders, have sold this idea that college is something like the golden ticket, right? Mm-hmm. Just got to get in, pay whatever it takes, and you're in, right? You're fine. You've achieved that piece of the American dream. Next, you got you got to get the white picket fence around your house next, right? And then you're on your way. But the reality is that college doesn't work that way, just like any other investment. There's variation in returns, meaning some people win big, some people lose big, right? And you've got to make a decision to ensure that you end up in the right point on that distribution, that you're not going to lose out. And we call it risk, right? This risk that you make a choice and end up at an institution that doesn't serve students well, but it's actually kind of an information problem. You can take the risk out of the equation for you or for your child 
if you utilize this information. But we've got to change the way that we're talking about college because as long as people are being sold on the idea that college is the golden ticket, there's really no reason to do this kind of forethought and research before you lay out the money. I am not a huge fan of these for-profit colleges. Can you just say a word about how that, even just the proliferation of for-profit colleges, how that has really distorted some of these numbers as well? Yeah, great point. So we've had an explosion of for-profit providers in higher ed space. And I think that's in part because we've sold this idea, again, that everyone needs to get a college degree in this country. And that's fine. You know, years ago, I was defender of the idea. I said, why can't a for-profit institution provide value just like a nonprofit does, right? Lots of for-profit institutions in our, our lives create value for us. I love Apple products. They create a lot of value for me, but I don't hate them because they're a for-profit Turns out I had to eat my words a little bit because when the data came out, these for-profit institutions on average were not providing a good service to students. So, you know, this is a case where shop carefully. Some for-profit institutions out there are doing a great job. And, you know, if you find it and it works for you, that's fine to go there. But statistically speaking, they've not been a great bet historically. If you are intrigued by this, don't worry. We've got a whole second part of the program tomorrow. So until then, send us questions. Ask Jill at JillOnMoney.com. If you're on the website, JillOnMoney.com, hit the contact button. Don't forget to subscribe to this program. If maybe you're listening to this on YouTube or send it along to somebody who you think could benefit from it. We would very much appreciate that. Really, we would. Try to do something nice for someone else today. Grit, growth, grace. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.